Well, I'm so glad to see you today. It just does my heart good to see you. You know, let's get together every week. Why don't we do that? We'll go over to our father's house and just hang out because we're family, right? You want to be family with me? Some of you are not too sure. <laughs> Better be careful. You may have to spend eternity with me in heaven, so you might as well get used to me now, right? We want to welcome those worshiping with us online again today. Glad that you could be here as well. Now, I want to start out today by telling you two true stories. I'm not making these up. My wife will verify, especially this first one I tell you, you're going to go, he made that up. I did not make it up. My wife will tell you, I did not embellish. I'm telling you the gospel truth. Okay, you ready? When I served the church before I came here, it was in Trinity United Methodist Church in Opelika, Alabama. My first day there was July the 1st, 2006. The first Sunday that I preached there in one of the services, a guy fell out in church. Now, I don't mean that he just kind of had a little spell and, you know, then they kind of got him straightened out and everything was good. I mean, this guy went down. He fell out. They had to call the paramedics in. It just stopped everything in church. I've just started preaching, and we just got to go time out and take care of this guy, okay? The second Sunday I was there, I got up to preach, and when I started preaching, another guy fell out in church. I'm not kidding. He really did, and they had to call the ambulance and get the paramedics there and take care of him, and we just had to wait until they took care of all that, okay? The third Sunday I was there preaching at the church, another guy fell out in church. It was in the same service. Now, fortunately... All three of these guys turned out to be fine. We, we didn't know. We, we didn't know if they were dead at first. They, it turned out that they were fine, but, but each one of them had passed out. It was July. It was hot. I think it was just warm in there. For whatever reason, each one of them, each Sunday, the first three Sundays I was there, passed out. So the people came up to me after the third Sunday, and they said, what kind of church did you say you were from? <laughs> We're just wondering if you had a Pentecostal background, maybe. <laughs> he just couldn't. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was not like anything I've ever seen happen before. Just one of those freak things, okay? Now, when we looked at them, we didn't know. Are they dead? You know, everybody was real quiet. But it turns out, no, they weren't dead. We were mistaken. They were fine. They just passed out. All right. Second story. There was a judge in Yugoslavia who had, he had a bathtub. He was in the bathtub, and he had one of those chains that you pull from the light bulb to turn the light on and off, okay? He's standing in the bathtub. He pulls the chain, and he was electrocuted, okay? The authorities came and got him. They took him to the morgue. The coroner declared him dead, and they put him on a slab. Several hours later, he woke up. He realized where he was. He, it all came together what had happened. So he got up. This naked man, this judge in Yugoslavia, walks out of the room where they've got him on the slab and goes to the office to find somebody who's working there. The guy who's there working in the office that night takes one, looks at him, starts screaming, and runs out of the morgue. He's scared to death. 
He leaves. So then the judge goes, well, what am I going to do? So he picks up the phone and he calls his wife. And his wife hears his voice and she faints. So then he calls a friend who knew that he had died. He talks to his friend. He tells him he's okay. The friend doesn't believe him. He thinks somebody's playing a prank. Somebody's imitating his friend's voice. He hangs up on him. Finally, he has to call a man in another town who has not heard about his death so he can explain what's happened so that that guy can call his family and friends and tell them what had happened. They thought he was dead, but they were mistaken. The most disruptive miracle during Jesus' ministry was when he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was well known. He lived in the city of Bethany. People in the city, people beyond the city knew him. Lazarus was dead. I mean, he was dead. I mean, he was embalmed dead. I mean, they had the funeral. He was dead, okay? And when they came to Jesus to say, your friend Lazarus is sick and he was in another town, if you'll come, you can heal him. What did Jesus do? Immediately he went, right? No. He waited three days, okay? And you're going, what kind of friend is that? He waited three days. Why didn't he come check on me? But see, Jesus knew what was going to happen. And Jesus said, I'm not going to just heal him of a sickness. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And God will be glorified. And many people will be drawn to the kingdom because of what I'm about to do. And so that's what he did. He went. The people said, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't be dead. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. He was wrapped in burial clothes. If he hadn't said Lazarus and he just said, come forth, Everybody who had died would come out at that time. So he was very specific, okay? And he called Lazarus out, and Lazarus came back from the dead. And he was dead. It wasn't just like, well, we think he's dead. He might not be dead. He was dead, dead, okay? And Bethany became a tourist attraction. People heard about what happened, and they came from all over the region to have a Lazarus sighting. We want to see this guy who was raised from the dead. And here's what the Scripture says in the Gospel of John. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court in those days. What are we accomplishing, they ask? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Isn't that one of the saddest things you've ever heard in the Bible? Jesus raises a man from the dead, and all these people can think is, if we don't stop Jesus, then the Romans are going to come, 
and they're going to take away our temple, and they're going to take away our nation, and they're going to take away our positions of authority and power, and it's going to belong to somebody else. And we can't let that happen. Isn't that sad to you? Now, let me ask you a question. Before we judge them too harshly, what is it that we hold on to that keeps us at a distance from Jesus? What is it that we don't want to let go of that, that when I say that, immediately something comes to your mind and the Holy Spirit convicts you? And you know that that, whatever that is, is standing between you and Jesus. What is it? Because all of us have those things. And all of us have to be honest. And all of us have to be real enough to say, you know, I don't want to be like that. That's ugly to me. I don't even like reading about other people who are that way. I certainly don't want to be that way myself. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court in the first century. And they spent the time, the people did, around the temple area. And they represented themselves to Rome and Rome to the people that they were in charge of. And there was a guy named Nicodemus who had gone quietly, secretly at night behind the scenes to meet with Jesus. And Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. And they met together. They had a meeting. And here's what they determined at their meeting. Jesus was not simply performing random miracles. But Jesus was performing signs, and he was pointing to something. They saw that he was intentional. They saw that he had a mission. There was something that he was doing, and they were seeing it. And these guys understood that he was pointing to something entirely new. You see, they'd always been taught to have Passover. And Passover is when they celebrated how the Lord spared them and the death angel didn't come to their house because they painted their door frames with blood so that when the death angel came, he would pass over them and they would be delivered from their bondage and they would be with God and they would follow him from then on. And so they had always celebrated that. They grew up celebrating that. That's all they knew. And Jesus is getting ready to introduce something completely different, and it is so foreign to everything they've ever known. Has God ever asked you to do something new? Has he ever challenged you to change? You know, our first answer when the Holy Spirit comes on us and calls us to do something is, no, no. No, not me. I can't do that. No, I don't want to do that. I, I didn't think of it. So obviously it's not the right thing for me to do, right? I know about you. I, I've been around you, been around me too. But you know what? The Holy Spirit just keeps convicting us and working with us in such a way that the truth comes out and we realize it and we're miserable until we do it. And so what we see is, that they had to make a change. And they concluded if we let him go on like this, then they're going, to take, they're going to take away our temple, they're going to take away our nation, they're going to take away our position, and they won't need us anymore. 
And the tragedy is, is what they said in John, the 11th chapter. So from that day on, they plotted to kidnap Jesus, just get him out of the area, just kind of squelch his ministry. No, they want to take his life. I'm holding on to my stuff so much, and I'm so threatened by Jesus and him trying to change things, I'm going to kill him to keep him from me having to change. How did Jesus find out about it? Well, I have a hunch. And I believe what happened was that Nicodemus knew about it because he was at the meeting. And I believe he got word to Jesus and he said, they're out after you. They're going to take you out. And so it says in Scripture, Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. Now, Judea is the region where he is, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the most of the religious leaders were. That's where they lived and functioned. And Jesus could have easily left there and gone north and gone back to Galilee. That's where he called the disciples. That's where he, he liked to be. That's what he was used to. That's where he was from in that area. It would have been easy for him to leave. But now he had to be more covert. He had to be careful with his actions and his teaching and his miracles. He had to kind of keep things under the radar. And the reason he stayed in Judea was because it was about time for Passover that would take place in Jerusalem. And so he had to kind of stay close by, but he didn't want to stay too close and so that he could get into Jerusalem when Passover came. He didn't want to be arrested before Passover. And the gospel writer John says that the religious leaders put spies all over the city and they put them at the gates and they put them all over the region and they were looking for Jesus. And here's what they wanted to do. They wanted to catch him when he wasn't with a crowd because he had the crowd with him. They followed him. And so they wanted to kind of secretly capture him when the crowd wasn't around because if the crowd was there, they would protest so much that the people, the authorities couldn't take him. And so that's what they were plotting to do. But a few days before Passover, he starts quietly making his way toward the city. He goes back to Bethany first, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. And it says in John, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This group was so desperate that these chief priests and elders were making plans not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus as well, because he's evidence that something new is taking place. Jesus is about to overwhelm the entire religious system. Now, this has always struck me odd. These people want to kill a man who has been raised from the dead. How's that going to work exactly? Jesus has already healed Lazarus. He's raised him from the dead. Well, we'll kill him again. That'll take care of that. 
Well, couldn't Jesus just raise him again and say, there, how about that? And so it just doesn't make any sense to me. But, but that's what's going on. And in the first century, the people who became followers of Jesus, this is important, they were evidence-based. They didn't talk about faith in the first century. They talked about evidence. They saw it for themselves. All I know is he was dead and then he was raised again. All I know is that Jesus was crucified and then he was resurrected. And that's enough for me. And it was fact-based. They didn't have to have faith. They saw it for themselves. And so what happened, it says, the next day, the great crowd that had come together for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus is even more popular than Passover. And that's a big deal for them, okay? And the scripture says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Listen. They say that today. Look how the whole world has gone after him, and the world is a whole lot bigger today than it was back then. You know, Jerusalem was a big city for them in that day in the first century, and then all the people in the region came in, but it was nothing like the places we see around the world today. And who are we still talking about today? 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus, and what are we doing? We're going after him because he said, follow me, right? So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. And they finally decide to make their way to Jerusalem now. And there's tension and there's drama. And Pilate calls in extra military guards because always Passover was a place for troublemakers. You get a big crowd together, there's going to be people who are trying to steal stuff, right? Pickpockets are going to be there. People not just from the city, but from the region have all come in together. And normally what happened at Passover would be there would always be troublemakers and zealots who would proclaim themselves the new Messiah who had come to save the world. So Pilate wanted to keep a clamp on the city. He wanted to keep a stern, tight fist on what was going on because he had the power. And Jerusalem was a large place in those days, but it was even bigger. It was swelled up because of Passover. And they're on the road headed to Jerusalem. And that's where our story today takes place. And here's what happened. It says in Mark, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, meaning himself, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. 
They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other sit on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now I want you to catch this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. These are the people closest to him. These are the people that are following him in his ministry. And he tells them what's getting ready to happen. He says, here's what's going to happen to me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to take me and beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. And, and then three days later, I, I'm going to rise from the dead. You got it? And immediately they're sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? We've got the momentum. We've got the crowd on our side. What in the world? We don't even understand what he's saying. And as soon as he finished giving his speech, these two guys come up and they say, when you come into your kingdom, we would like to have positions of authority. You talk about being self-focused, the person that you're following, the person that you admire, the Son of God says, they're getting ready to kill me, and you raise your hand and say, um, Jesus, um, could I kind of have a position of authority when you come into your kingdom? You talk about totally missing what Jesus said. It goes right over their head. And the other disciples are indignant. But part of the reason they're indignant is because, wait a minute, we might want to be in positions of authority ourselves. Why would we let you take that? And now they're fighting and fussing and arguing over who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. Jesus says, you don't really understand what you're talking about. No, no, he said, they said, we can handle it. It's okay. We can do it. We can do whatever we need to do. We're with you. But they were wrong. Because just a few weeks later, when Jesus is arrested before a single drop of blood is spilled from his body, they all run away. And then the other guys who overheard the conversation became indignant with James and John. And they can't believe what he's talking about. And Jesus' disciples are just now a few hours from entering the city of Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They're arguing over who's going to be first and who's going to be second. Now listen, before we judge them too harshly, what in our lives is like that? Do we ever get wrapped up in our own ego? Do we ever get wrapped up in our own position? Do we ever think to ourselves, you know, I got it pretty good. And I don't want anything or anyone to change that. You know, I grew up in the Methodist church. All my life I went to the Methodist church. And I've been in the ministry for 40-something years now. And, and I didn't leave the Methodist church. It left me. But we got to a point where I couldn't do business as usual anymore, and the people of this church couldn't do it either. And, you know, I was ordained in the Methodist church, and it was a big deal. And I went to graduate school, and I put a lot of work into all that. But, you know, I got to a place where I said, I don't really care about that anymore. It doesn't matter because all that stuff's going to die. But my relationship with Jesus is not. And he's more important to me than that stuff. And so I'm just not going to do that anymore. 
And so we were here at this church, and we left, and I was ordained, and I surrendered my credentials, and I gave them away. And, and that's a big deal. I don't know if you really understand that or not, but if you've worked on that and done that, it, it's a big deal, and it's like a part of your ministry for all those years. But you know what? I don't have any regrets about it because my first allegiance is to Jesus. Really. And you know, I, I saw peers of mine, and as the as the Methodist church was going down the drain and people were leaving, and, and they're getting ready to really leave now this next year, I saw preachers fighting over who was going to be elected and if their peers were going to elect them over somebody else. And as I looked at it to me from a distance, it looked like people fighting over who was going to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. And I thought, I'm so glad that I don't have to be wrapped up in that anymore. I wonder, what is it in our lives that we have to deal with? I've told you that whenever I preach on something, I, I get tested on it. And it's just a way of God making sure that I really get it, okay? Today, what is it that he's saying to you? Here's what it says in Mark. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What he was saying is, is you know how it works. The people with power make the decisions, and those people tell everybody else what to do. And the people under their authority just have to follow what they teach them and tell them to do. But he said, it's not going to be that way in my kingdom. He said, in my kingdom, it's upside down. It's just the opposite. The people with power are going to give away their power to be a blessing to other people. And instead of the king saying, you're my subjects, I want you to die and give your life for me, Jesus said, no, <laughs> I'm going to die and give my life for you. And when the world saw that, they set up and, take no and took notice because they're not used to seeing things like that. You see, when we do something that's totally opposite of what the world does, then we have their attention. And the amazing thing about this is that the disciples didn't get it at first. They didn't really understand what he was talking about. But then something happened. Jesus died and was resurrected. And when those disciples looked into the eyes of Jesus after he was resurrected, they got it. I mean, they really got it. And he said, now, look, if you want to follow me, don't go to the front of the line. Come back here to the back of the line because that's where I'm headed. And if you're going to follow me, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to put other people first. And we're going to love them first. And we're going to make them a priority. And it's so amazing. And you can read the book of Acts because these guys got it. And the way I know that is that when the New Testament church, the first century church got started, once Jesus was resurrected, these disciples who had run away in fear, they saw Jesus resurrected, and then it changed everything. 
And they said, we are dedicating the rest of our lives to telling the world who Jesus is and what he did for them. And we don't care what happens to us. They can kill us because we're not afraid of death because we know that we're going to live with Jesus forever. So we're going to go out, and they went out boldly with courage, and they shared that message to death, and they made sure that the world knew what was going on, and they were so committed to what they were doing and being servants that the people finally came to them and said, you have got to stop serving, and you've got to start teaching so that other people can learn more about Jesus. They literally had to pry their fingers away from the serving trays so that they could teach now. And that's what they did. And when they got to Jerusalem, Jesus took his disciples to the upper room. And it says in John, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you shall have no part of me. And Jesus said, I'm doing something new. And he got down and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And you know what I think happened in the upper room? I don't think that they said a word. I think you could have heard a pin drop. It takes a long time to wash 12 guys' feet. They wore sandals back then, and it was dusty and dirty, and it was hot, and it was hard to do that. And so one by one, one toe at a time, one ankle at a time, one foot at a time, Jesus washed their feet, and all you could hear was the sound of the water dripping off as he washed their feet. When he finished, he stood up, and he put his robe back on, and he sat back down at the table. And I don't think anybody said a word, but he looked at them as he looks at you and as he looks at me, and he says, if you're a Jesus follower, that's what I want you to do for other people. I want you to serve. And the scripture says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And then he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you think about them. You will be blessed if you talk about them. You will be blessed if you do them. What? Do them. We have to do them in order to do what he wants us to do. And then he said, I didn't come to be served. But I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So whenever you start thinking about being a big shot, just remember me and then do what I've done. And that's what they did. And they were persecuted and they didn't care. And the first century church was so strong. And this was so appalling to the Romans because the Romans were used to might and power.
and they were in charge and they had the authority and they saw these people who had power give it over to other people and put them first. The idea of putting people first did three things. First, it was appalling to them. That's the first thing that you saw. It was appalling to them. They, they couldn't believe that they had done that. It was completely upside down. And then it became appealing to them over time. People flocked to the Jesus movement. Christians refused to abandon the sick. Christians refused to leave the villages where there were plagues, and they stayed with the people there and ministered to them. They refused to run away and hide. Why? Because they weren't afraid to die. And they didn't have the Internet. And they didn't have television, and they didn't have mass media and ways to communicate the way we can do all over the world today. But that message was so strong that it started with that little group of people, and it went out all over the world. And we're still talking about it today, and it's still going out all over the world today because of what Jesus did. They took in abandoned and exposed children. They had compassion and generosity, and they put other people first, and the world was so attracted to that. And third thing that happened was eventually it became contagious. It became contagious, and this it was like an airborne disease that spread, and Christianity went out all over the empire to the barbarian tribes, and against all odds, a cult with a crucified leader with no territory, no military, no authority, eventually embraced, was embraced by the empire that set out to destroy it. Now that is a miracle. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. And if you're a Christian, those are your people. And it worked once, and it can work again. Because when you and I just turn everything upside down, the world takes notice and they say, you know, there's something special there. I don't know what it is. There's something, that person's got something that I don't have. And I want it in my life. And I don't know how to get it. I don't even know what it is. But, but I want to change. I want to have what they have. If you've ever had the, the opportunity and the privilege to follow a leader who models that for other people, what happens? You respect them. You admire them. You look up to them. And Christians are called to ask a question. And here's the question that Jesus wants us all to, an to answer. This is the question we have to ask. How can I help? How can I help? What can I do? Because let me tell you something. If you're not dead, you're not done. If you're still on the earth, God has a mission for you. God has gifted every person in here with gifts. And he wants you to use your gifts for the kingdom. And he wants you to do what he calls you to do. And so I'm going to pray that you will be miserable until you do. Because I love you. And let me tell you something. When you do it, you think you're going to help somebody else. And when you do it, you get through and you go, wow, that was such a blessing. 
I've told you, when I was at a new church in Navarre, Florida for 20 years, I used to talk to them about stuff all the time, and they used to say, we're going to print up T-shirts, and we're going to put on the front of them, just say no to Joe. And I said, you can say no to me all day long. Well, let me tell you what you got to put on the back of that T-shirt. As long as you say yes to Jesus. So you talk to him about it. You ask him and let him talk to you. And he'll convict you. He'll give you something to do. He'll show you what it is that he wants you to do. And, and listen, when he does that, it's not always going to be something you thought of first, okay? Normally it's not. Normally it's a surprise. And we go, no, 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 no. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And we've had people do that here, and, and they say no. And then we just pray. And then they get convicted. And then they call us back, and they say, you know, I prayed about this. And um, I got convicted. And I want to change my answer, because I just say no automatically. But I want to say yes. Now, don't do it because of me. You know, the Holy Spirit will tell you. And if the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not called to do that, you're not. But if he says you are, then you'll never be at peace until you do it. Because the mission's still going on. Is everybody saved in the world? Are all these seats full here in church? Is there anybody left out there that we can tell about Jesus? And what he did for us and, and how thankful we are and how blessed we are. And listen, you may think, well, what I'm, what I'm talking about, it's such a little behind-the-scenes, minute thing. It's no big deal, really. I mean, does that really matter? Yeah, it does. Because what God says is we are the body of Christ. And when everybody comes together and uses their gift, their strength in bunches. And when we come together and all use our gifts, that's when the church is at its best. But it will never be all he wants it to be if you say no to him, not to me, but to him. So I'm just going to ask you to pray about that and give it to him because the thing that comes to your mind when that happens, that's the thing he's talking to you about. That's the thing that he wants to do. And it rocked the world one time, and it could do it again. And all God's children said,